Welcome in, everybody. This week on the pod, we're very lucky to have Andrew Mertens all the way from Sydney joining us, and we're going to regale some stories to both of us about our time with the Crusaders. Hey, Mert, so I was having a bit of a chuckle when they asked us to do this show uh, and try and reminisce about those old school days because, you know, memory's not that great for some of them, but when you think about it, it was pretty much the Wild West, wasn't it? And like, because we were going from amateur to professional that first year of the Crusaders in Canterbury. But the one thing that I remember when I arrived in Christchurch, which you'll probably have a, a better story about and, and be able to fill, fill the um, people that are listening in, was I, I, you had made it in my mind because you were driving around in this um, little uh, signed up, was it a Peugeot, a Peugeot or a Fiat yeah, or something? Fiat <laughs> you and Simon Forrest had sponsored cars and you were you'd got them with Canterbury and you're still driving them around um and that and that's those sort of mid-90s weren't you that was I thought oh man if I can do something in rugby I want to get myself a sponsored car yeah it was um that was the big time for me and um I'd gone from driving my late grandmother's Austin 1100 around um with a pretty grunty gear stick, and then suddenly got put in this flash, uh, flash new vehicle. To me, very flash new vehicle. Um, thanks to a sponsorship with Fiat, and it was in the early days of, I guess, um, well, there'd always been sponsorships, but this was when rugby was starting to ramp up, as you know. And you came up, I think you came up and had a, a groin operation straight away. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you felt intimidated or what. You just had to <laughs> have your groin operation, but. Um, <laughs> Um, and on suddenly, yeah, Simon Forrest and I were driving around. Fiat had a sponsorship, Punto. They play on words with the punt, obviously. I didn't do much else. And um, on the side of these cars had, look who's getting a kick out of new Punto. So drove uh, drove this shiny new little hatchback around until I backed it into a uh, backed it into a pillar in a parking building, caved the back of it in, and they said, "Oh, we'll take it in and fix it." And um, <laughs> I don't think they wanted to give it back to me. So was it returned? Do you remember what I what they gave me? Well, the four the days of the Ford, wasn't it? The uh, the Ford sponsorship with the All Blacks, wasn't it? I don't know. What they they, they gave uh, me this halted, but basically half of it was white and half of it was black. Um, and Canterbury, for some reason, had that as a sponsored car. We used to call it the Brock car after Peter Brock because it looked like I don't remember Brocky that had been done up, and I used to be rip, ripping around there. And here you come. Coming in your nice little uh, Fiat, buddy. <laughs> with, the, with the boot caved in so it can't open. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, might have been an old um, traffic officer car. I remember they were black and white. So it was probably Colin Hawks from down in Timaru that uh, <laughs> re, uh, repossessed Colin Hawks' uh, traffic officer car. Get out of there, Seven. Get out of there. And uh, <laughs> must have given it to you. That was, yeah, like I said, that, that was the Wild West, though, wasn't it? Because you, you were working, though, and I, like I was working as well. So when we went into that 96 season professionally, we were sort of, because Barnes Stewart was our coach and um, like they had us at the gym at 5.30 in the morning. So, you know, you had to get up, go to the gym, do a workout then, then go to work and then uh, go to training at the end of the day, which was the second part of the session for the day, wasn't it? So we were kind of still amateurs, yet we were being paid to play rugby, but still working. Yeah, you would have been strapping on your, your tool belt as a chippy, I think, weren't you, at the time? And yeah. I was wanting off to do uh, what they termed work, but I'm, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure if you looked at it closely, it probably wasn't down at BCP Print, Bascan Commercial Print, and enjoyed it. As you say, we're probably training 
Well, I mean, that first Super Rugby I missed um, through injury. So I was actually appointed as the media liaison officer. Um, and in that role, I probably did less than I did at BCP Print. I think I turned up, as you say, six o'clock in the morning, you guys were, uh, were at the gym. I was never good at the gym anyway, least of all if I was the media liaison officer carrying a sore knee around. Um, but I, I think I lasted about three sessions of turning up at six in the morning, watching you guys train. I was never going to train myself. And I thought, what's a media liaison officer doing here at six in the morning? So I flagged it pretty quickly. <laughs> but yeah, we had, you know, obviously most of the guys, if they weren't students, guys had jobs and um, we were training early in the morning and, and, uh, and then at night. And we'd had that through the Canterbury years, a couple of years prior to that, when you'd come up and, and been part of that group and won the Ranfurly Shield and whatnot. And, um, the evening trainings were memorable for the fact that Mike Brewer, who was captain at the end of every training and would do a few laps of the field, old school style, and he'd drag everyone in for a bit of a motivational speech, but he had this big thing of salt oh. that had rolled down onto his chin. And no matter how serious and how fired up he was getting about the game <laughs> in the weekend, everyone's just looking at this green thing hanging off his chin thinking, when's it going to fall down? So it sort of lost a little bit of the effect, I think, of his speech. It is like the uh, Austin Powers, isn't it, with the mole? Mole. <laughs> Moly moly. Yeah, he, I remember it vividly. Like, I'd completely forgot about that, but you couldn't concentrate because it was always just sitting right there, a great big basic blob of spit. <laughs> well, you, you remember things. You remember more important things like moves and, you know, how we went in games and what happened, you know, when you're having an argument with Andre Watson and about to walk off to get a card. You remember <laughs> things like that that are important. I remember stuff like... A gob of snot hanging off Mike Brewer's chin. Did you, like, uh, around that time, obviously, it uh, must have been quite frustrating for you that, you know, that you had your knee injury in the game had turned pro and the Crusaders, um, you know, entered into the, the Super 12 as it was back then. Um, and you being the media liaison, man, uh, it must have been a little bit frustrating. But obviously, it wasn't such a bad season for you because we finished dead last. So you, you didn't miss anything that year. That was... It was tough to watch because you see the effort that all the boys are making. Um, at that stage, you know, we had a lot, we, we already had a lot of imports and I think we had a lot of injuries that year. So I think we went through something like 40 players uh, in the first year of Super Rugby, which is quite an extraordinary amount. It's a high amount for those days. And, you know, those first couple of seasons, we had some awesome blokes come into the group. And, you know, while the results were tough and, and, you know, you're hurting when you see the guys work so hard and and, um, and have a tough run of results. But, you know, the guys that, you know, Demo came up from, from South Canterbury. We had Dion Muir, I think, came to Andy Miller from Bay of Plenty. And all these people from, from outside the region came in as crusaders in that first year, along with the traditional sort of Cantab farmers who were in there, you, you know, Stu Lowe, Student Loan, um, guys like that. So, you know, it was, it was a hell of a group. And... Yeah, it was, it was tough to watch because, you know, you're giving it everything on the field. And uh, I think I ended up commentating the Blues game at Lancaster Park and went pretty close there, but they just had so much firepower. It just seemed all the other teams had, had so much firepower. And we were kind of a bunch of misfits that all came together and, and good blokes, but just, uh, and worked hard, but just unfortunately the results didn't come. We were on the back of those great guys that we got, as you mentioned, in, in the side that had, you know, unique opportunities because, you know, we, we were, we did have a lot of injuries. We were trying to piece together. So we had some also real sort of stalwarts of Canterbury rugby, didn't we? That were, were sort of, well, let's just say, 
we won't say hanging on, but happy to get into playing professional rugby, the likes of, uh, you know, uh, Scotty England and um, you mentioned Bruiser. Uh, Richard Lowe was another one. You mentioned Stu Lowe. God, when you, when you mentioned his name, I um, I remember you, you, I don't think you were at training this day as the media liaison man, but, you know, Lowe being Lowe, he was always aggressive at training runs and he had, he had, a, he was a real stickler for feeds being properly uh, into the scrum during a training run, but these were opposed, uh, non-opposed. So there was no, they weren't crashing into each other. And then, so I was obviously halfback at the time. And if he didn't say it once, he said it five times in the training run. Boy, he used to call me, put the ball in as you would put it in in a match, simulate it properly, put it in. And uh, I would just throw it in there and then go to the next scrum and he would say the same thing and he'd get real aggro about it. And in the end, I cracked. I'd had enough of him, and because obviously it wasn't really simulating it, so I said to Lowe, I said, tell you what, Lowe, I'll put the ball in anywhere I want. If you're actually pushing a scrum for once, we'll be fine. <laughs> and I tell you, I put the ball in, and he went, boom, like that. And before the ball was at the back of the scrum, he was coming back around from the front row. Fastest clearance I've ever made. Out the back, crisp. And I was ch chasing the ball across the other side. And I could hear him <laughs> running across. And he was chasing me across the field. That's probably some of the, the finest clearing speed to the ruck that I've ever, ever done. And then I had to hide for him for the next 30 minutes. I have seen, I, look, I didn't see that, but I can remember a bullet that I got. I think it was down at Burnham that we were training. And um, <laughs> I'd, I'd call a move in the backs. And, and this was part of all this, you know, juggling a little bit of a um, little bit of a power struggle within the team or whatever, but all in a nice context. And I'd wanted the ball off the line out at the back or something like that. And it hadn't come off the back, it come off the front. And we didn't want that because it meant that the, you know, flankers of the opposition could run off and, and smack us before we got over the game line. So I said, let's do it again. And uh, you didn't want to do it again. You said, just, can you work with what you got? And I said, no, I want, we want the ball off the back of the line out. I'll tell you what, the next ball that came off that line out, if I hadn't got my hands in the way, my head was gone. And I thought, <laughs> I thought I might, maybe that's worth chipping you a little bit in the uh, in the game every now and then for that too. And, and you probably felt the same with tackling. I mean, I was never good at it. The only time that we made a couple of tackles was every now I'd probably take an offence at someone being, <laughs> being a smart aleck and for once in my life put in a good hit. Probably people should have needled me a bit more on the field too. Do you recall the uh, year before the court session uh, after the King Country game? You probably won't remember it from the minute that during the court session you accidentally spilt your beer all over Richard Lowe and thought that it was hilarious, which I thought I was sitting right beside you and I thought that's not good. Uh, and uh, it's completely soaked his pants, and you laughed at, laughed at the fact that it had done that, and he just looked at you, and I thought, right, and he didn't react, and then the next thing, must have been about three or four minutes later, he stood up to walk away, and he came up behind you and put you in a sleeper hole. Yeah, it was, um, it was I, I'm even more proud of that, actually, um, because we'd got to the end of the court session, we'd got an absolute hiding against King Country. Philippe Rayasi, I think, scored four tries that day. They put four, 50 points on us. We had, I think we held the Ranfurly Shield at the time in Christchurch, and our away games were a little bit of a, um, a struggle to, to get up for, but that's no excuse. We just absolutely got torn a new one by, uh, by King Country that day. And as you say, the court session went for a while, we tried to get a bit of uh, warm fuzzies at the end by having a bit of a sing-along. I was beside Richard Lowe. 
one moment I'm standing there trying to get my arm around this huge man and the next minute I kind of left my body and saw myself pouring this beer over the top of his head. And <laughs> was uh, that what it was? Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, I remember sort of thinking at the time being outside my body thinking, <laughs> well, this is kind of funny, but I, I, I don't think it's that funny. It's probably dangerous as well. And um, <laughs> yeah, as you say, soon after uh, the sleeper hold went on, Murdens was snoring. Um, <laughs> we had slept well that night and, and had forgotten about it the next morning, walked out for breakfast. And as I walked into the breakfast room, already a few guys in the room. And as I walked past, I sort of could hear some chuckling on one side and I'd look over and stop. Some snickering over the other side and look over and stop. <laughs> and I sort of sat down and I thought, oh, actually feeling pretty good. And then started having those flashbacks. And um, yeah, it was yeah, quite a good moment. Low one, Merton's nil, still remains at that score. Um, but I reckon, I'll, I reckon I'll get him. Yeah, so there's still time. You'll be fine. <laughs> I just um, just wait, five, wait till he really slows down. Then you'll be right. <laughs> um, so yeah, look, at, obviously you got the opportunity uh, in, in 97 um, to get out there. That must have been pretty cool uh, and, and a slightly better year for us. Yes, um, there'd been a, a little bit of a change. Not that that was the improvement, but sometimes a change of scenery, you know, can, can spur a little bit of, uh, I guess, enthusiasm or whatever. It had been a tough year. Um, we, I, I don't think probably enough credit from those, that early Crusader success or that Crusader success at the end of the 90s has been laid back at the feet of the, the, the kind of foundations that were built in the early 90s. And, and that was guys like, you mentioned Vance Stewart, who came in as coach after a run of probably four or five coaches in as many years with Canterbury, Vance Stewart got the reins and, and was the coach for three or four years um, and instilled a bit of belief in us, I think, as well. He managed to mould a, um, a group of young sort of tyros coming through, the likes of a couple of Southlanders came north, uh, Tumbai Matson, Mark Mayerhoffler, Angus Gardner, you know, Matt Sexton and, and Mark Hammett. That, that sort of young breed came through. And then we had the, the grizzled heads, you know, the Shane Philpott, Rob Penny, uh, Scotty England, Stu Lowe, and they were, they were awesome to us. We never felt like it was an easy run as a youngster, but you never felt you were being just disrespected or browbeaten. So um, Vance Stewart and Ozzie McLean had done an amazing job in bringing that team together and, and getting some success and getting some confidence back. And then, you know, 97, Wayne Smith came along and I guess modernised a little bit even further. And, um, you know, where it had been a tough year in, in, in 96, sorry, in 97 he came along. And I think we finished sixth and we ended up by, you know, Queensland might have given up the chase by that stage being out of playoffs, but we put 48 points on them at Lancaster Park in the last game of the season in 97. And, um, you know, from there, we, we took a lot more confidence into the, into the title winning year of 98, as you know, but um, that was an interesting year because, you know, we started winning some games and it was a new feeling and it kind of grew, didn't it? And, as I say, there were you know a few new players came in as well. Um, I can't remember who came in which year. I think Leon McDonald that year might have actually played for the Chiefs, did he? One of the yeah, years he Leon might McDonald, have. we we sacrificed him to the Chiefs. He got put in as number ten up there. So, but but he came back down soon enough. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a good year. But like I say, I just remember that that Queensland game um, because they were the big boys of, of of domestic rugby, certainly in the Southern Hemisphere. And to, to beat them by quite a lot on a sunny day in, in May in Lancaster Park was, was pretty amazing, wasn't it? Oh, it was, yeah. And yeah, I do remember that game. Everything sort of fell into place for us. And I think that probably carried over to the following year. It was, it was interesting, though, isn't it, that I guess 
you know, even through that period um, and leading into Wayne Smith being there, we were starting to develop a nice little culture, weren't we, where there was good balance between the old heads and the new young group of players coming through as well. Uh, and, and even somebody like Wayne Smith, who came into that culture, um, he didn't escape what we, we, we deemed back then a little bit of chipping, did he? Because uh, I think it was you that likened him to uh, Mahoney off Police Academy. <laughs> been all of us, Marshy. I think we sat down and said, who does he remind us of? <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that was brilliant. And uh, a bit a bit later on, um, after some of his more intense meet, meetings, he became known as a dehumidifier. Yeah, Maxwell, Norm Maxwell, Norm, which is ironic, really, Norm Maxwell labelled him a dehumidifier because just he was so dry, um, Yeah, which was interesting coming from Maxwell himself, wasn't it? But, I mean, they were interesting years because, as you said, we were coming out of uh, the amateur era, going into professional. The, the, the opportunities that we had to tour to go to South Africa, these days, you know, players are together day in, day out. In those days, you didn't or hadn't traditionally seen as much of one another during the week. So the opportunity to tour was just awesome. I mean, it's, you know, touring still a, a good, a great part of sport and, and of rugby, but in those years, it was, it was a real highlight, wasn't it? I mean, we'd gone, you'd gone to Argentina, I think end of 94 with a development team, Canterbury at the same time, the Canterbury provincial team had gone to the UK. We'd had a cracking time for four or five weeks over there. And it was really good sort of team building stuff. And then, you know, every chance we had and, and Crusaders developed, I think that um, reputation as being quite a good team on tour, a, a team that performed well on tour, on the field. Um, and so, you know, when we went to South Africa, it was it was an opportunity. I mean, it wasn't all beer and Skittles, was it? We had some some tough years in South Africa on tour, but we really came together as a team well, and we, we thought we performed pretty well um, by comparison with how we went at home. You know, we were probably at 80 or 90% strength, you know, away from home as we were at home. In 96, we made a... Uh, unrivaled uh, pre-season um, fixture in South Africa. Golly, like that was something that nobody's ever attempted to do before and there's there's good reasons for that. I think we were over there and must have been early January and it was about 3 million, <laughs> 3 million degrees and uh, a lot of us had never been to South Africa before. Uh, and yeah, genuine excitement. So, like, I think we probably got an early taste of what South Africa was going to be like when we uh, had to go there and try and get through a, a pre-season. I think we played three games. In fact, what I remember out of that was, I um, know oh, that was the following year. Remember when uh, was it Chester Williams? Uh, he was he was you know like one of the great players for South African rugby, and we were the team I think twice that he did his knee yeah. when he played us, like freakishly. He did one knee and then. It recovered from that a year later and then we were playing him again and then he did his like did his other knee we had a few instances like that with people having bad luck didn't we because we called daryl gibson the, the black widow because he seemed to always be around when someone got really poorly injured yeah he had a, he had a, um, a special skill with achilles didn't he he was the one who passed the ball to you when you had to jump up high instead of just trotting over the line and scoring you had to jump up high to get this pass and when you came down, you busted your uh, your Achilles. How you managed to hobble yourself across the five or six metres across the line still and score, I don't know. I mean, I would have been, that would have put me out for three years, I reckon. Um, <laughs> and then it was Gibson who knocked the ball on that led to the scrum to Matt Sexton doing his Achilles tendon at the same time. But 
you know, people did their knees against us, particularly in the Cape Town. Um, I mean, Chester did a couple of times and um, and even off the field. I think Bob Skinstad had a bit of a, an incident that ruined his knee. Funnily enough, <laughs> I think Matt Sexton was uh, was witness to the car accident. I don't know how much yeah, he was into this, but Bob had yeah, an incident yeah, right. in Cape Town with a car and he hurt his knee. And Matt Sexton was most worried about having to having to go and witness it with the police or anything because he'd just been a bystander walking home from the pub. But he was smashing a pie and he was more worried about what the team management would think if, if it got found out that he was smacking a pie over at two in the morning, walking Basic home. Basic era though in South Africa, having a pie. I think I'd be more worried about, uh, you know, the, the following morning having to have a head pie at uh, two in the morning in South Africa than I was of anything else. Bloody hell. That's just something you get used to, mate, I think. Conditioning. Yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, look, we, we progress forward and, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, opportunities um, that arise through getting, you know, into playoff mode. And, uh, you know, in 98, you mentioned it, uh, I did my, my Achilles tendon in, uh, in a game there. Gibson got me. So um, it was an opportunity, to get, though, for you and the team to, to go through uh, unexpected, really, wasn't it, to, to the first uh, Crusaders final against the Blues at Eden Park, where I don't think there's any question that we, you guys went into that game as massive underdogs. Yeah, well, I mean, we'd been underdogs probably every game for the last nine games of the season. You know, it was a quick, it's a, it was a sprint, I guess, a little bit compared to, to now. The Super 12 then were 11 round-robin games and two playoff games. And after five weeks, I think we'd had three losses out of four and a bye. So we were well and truly entrenched at the bottom of the table. Um, and then, as you, as you know, after that, we were a little bit lucky with the draw, I think, after that, because we came off the bottom of the table. And when we had our first win, it wasn't against one of the top teams at the time. I can't remember who it was, but we had a succession of teams through the rest of the round robin where each week got a little bit harder, but we didn't get chucked in against one of the top teams until until quite late. So we, we managed to progressively get better and better and better and have these wins and start stringing the, the, the wins together and the, the confidence obviously comes. And it culminated with that last round robin game in Durban where we beat the Sharks. Um, by this stage, Norm Berryman was at times on the field, almost single-handedly carrying the team on his shoulders. Uh, was extraordinary, wasn't he? But, um, and not so much carrying the team on his shoulders on a Thursday when he had to wake up on our day off and come to golf with us. But um, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the game against the Sharks, and then we had to turn around and fly back to Christchurch because beating the Sharks would manage to earn ourselves a home semi-final, which, <coughs> excuse me, in the... In the <coughs> not even... <laughs> Um, in the context of um, where we'd been, was just ridiculous to to, to be looking at a, at a home semi final. And the Sharks, I'm sure, hadn't anticipated having to travel for theirs. So we got second and third, and they came across and, and played in, in Christchurch. And Norm Berryman again, I, I think he did the big. I mean, you'd probably started that getting the crowd up, but he took it and put it on a big stage. Just a well, matter of he, timing. He probably did it properly <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> The big grin on his face helped as well, but um, the crowd just got right in behind it. I mean, as you'd expect in a semi-final when, when you know, Christchurch people hadn't been used to seeing a lot of success from the Crusaders. So we managed to come through. I think Daryl Lilly came on and played a, a very important role, Impact. Um, he was a guy who normally staying in the hotel the night before, I'd align with him because he's also a, a, a bit of a night owl. We'd watch a movie through to about midnight, 
nip up the road to Merivale to get a, um, a burger, which we had done at McDonald's. We did it once earlier in the season, and we were thought, sort of like, oh, I don't know if that's a good thing. And then we had a cracking game the day after. Everyone, everything clicked, and we won. So we thought, well, that's, you know, let's be, that's our routine now. Not a superstition, it's just routine. So Daryl Lilly came on and, um, and played a, a, an important, I think scored a try or set up a try down that left-hand side by the number three stand. And we beat the Sharks and off we went to Auckland for the final. And to this day, do not know how we won that game. We were hanging in there by the skin of our teeth the whole game. And all of a sudden at the end, um, James Kerr was flying onto the ball. I've, I've run blind, so I didn't know what I was going to do with it. James Kerr's called for the kick. I was, as you know, only too happy to kick the ball. Especially, <laughs> especially when someone else is saying kick it from our team and I know that there's someone going to chase it. And especially when there are some big blokes about to smack you like an Aroni Clark or, or a Charles Rickleman or someone like that. And so I was only too happy to put the ball in the foot. Around and shape of the rugby ball, as we know, is, is difficult to predict with the bounce. So... James Kerr's made a great effort to score that try. And like I say, to this day, do not know how we won that, that game up there. Probably the start, though, of what made the, I guess, the Crusaders then start to become a very successful franchise because uh, a game and situation like that where you're up against a, a genuine superstar side that was stacked full of talent uh, and, and you're a complete underdogs, but if you've got the right culture and you and you're actually out there with your mates and you're not listening to all the you know the, the peripheral sort of conversations that are going on you're just focused on what you're going to do you can achieve anything and I think probably for us that was 98 was the catalyst for you know like how many games did you play for the Crusaders and and I know that I did where I sat in the change room after the games thinking bloody how the hell did we win that game but somehow you found a way when it got tough, that's when you actually galvanised, gritted your teeth. And even if you're having a bad day at the office, you still found a way to get the job done. Yeah, we, um, even in that season of 2002, where we went unbeaten, there were a lot of games that we just scraped through at the end. But, you know, right back to that 98 game, when you look at it now, I mean, much as I was surprised at the time that we won and, and whatnot, but you look back and you go, well, there were a lot of unsung heroes in our team, guys who, later went on and played with the All Blacks who weren't in the All Blacks at the time, were reasonably unheralded at the time, or guys who, you know, certainly could have and should have been. Um, you know, Steve Surridge at number eight was just immense on defence. <laughs> yeah, me the poet. Um, <laughs> he was immense on defence and sometimes on offence. Um, where, with his, like, you know, he was a judoka. He had amazing skills getting over the ball on the ground, twisting people around aware of his body in space. Angus Gardner had been a massive part, you know, obviously at number seven from that, the Canterbury period where we won the Ranfurly Shield through into that, the early successful days of the, the Crusaders. He was just phenomenal, phenomenal. We've always struggled with that, haven't we? Phenomenal. We certainly have. I should have used indefatigable. But <laughs> um, guys, guys like that, and then the type five, I mean, and Norm Maxwell, who... You know, was a big, raw-boned, um, aggressive player, but, you know, probably didn't have the bulk of a lot of other locks, but played like he was 200 kilograms. And that final in Auckland, I mean, I was surprised. He, he, he made an amazing dummy pass and sprinted away for 30 metres to score a try. 
Um, and what surprised me at the time was he didn't pull a, a quad muscle because he was notorious for just turning up at pre-season training, wasn't he? Going through the testing and in his 40-metre sprint would always pull <laughs> on one side or the other, inevitably. And just, but anyway, he rocketed away and scored that try. And that was the moment also he started getting some belief. Um, well, not right. some, but getting more belief. Belief that at that stage, we'd started getting belief that we could beat teams, beat big teams. Then we started in that game getting belief that we could maybe win a final. Um, and, and 99 wasn't easy, though. By you know, we, we'd, we'd struggled in the early stages of 98. 99, the same. After, after four or five rounds, I think we were still pretty low on the table, weren't we? So uh, we had to, had to nail that South African trip and at least get one win just to make the playoffs. I, I certainly think, though, you know, for what, all, all that we did on the field, a lot that we did off it helped uh, that ability to, you know, when it got tough, um, again, like I said, galvanise as a team because we were good mates and spent a lot of time together off the field, didn't we? We didn't, I guess, uh, come into training runs or, or games or whatever and then leave and, and then regather for, for what I guess you could deem to be work. We... We got on famously as, a, as a, a group of guys around that time too. So we all sort of socialised together in that. And you needed characters like Maxi, didn't you? Like having, having him in the team, not only was he at the forefront of, uh, I guess, at every opportunity teasing others or chipping away at them or, or what he called mocking them. Um, but we also loved to basically take the piss out of him as well, didn't we? And, and some of the things that he did were, they were next level. Like, the, you know, the time that he forgot his, uh, his shoes, um, his dress shoes to go to the after match, and, and he just improvised. He took the studs out of, his, out of his rugby boots, which were obviously black high cuts at the time, and wore them into the uh, after match like it, it was normal. And with no socks. With no socks, because he didn't have his socks as well. So, you know, guys like that, um, he was great. Like, did you, I don't know if you remember, but he was trying to, at one stage, we had, a, we had a training run. And I won't go too deep into this, but there was a, a group of people that were there after the training run to talk to the players. And um, we were going through the last uh, set, set move for the, for the team training run. And I remember about to put the ball into the scrum and, and Maxwell said to me, who are, who are those fellas over there? And I said, oh, they are such and such. I won't go into it. And he said, all right, who are they here to see? It wasn't the police. Let's just specify it wasn't the police. No, it wasn't the police. So um, they, they sort of said, oh, you know, we, we, um, we, we, we do a ballot. So basically they'll have all of our uh, train, uh, playing numbers in a, in a ballot and they'll pull them out. And if your name's pulled out, then they'll want to speak with you. So I sort of, he said, really? And I said, yeah. He said, um, okay, that's interesting. I said, yeah, it is. Anyway, the, the move went through and we did that. We all got together afterwards and um, I think it was Toddy at the time said a few words and and then uh, I think it was R Robbie came over and said, right our guys, there's these people here. Um, they've drawn some names out of the hat, so can you all make your way over there and they'll tell you who they want to see. So anyway, they read out some names and then they said Norm Maxwell and he didn't step forward. They said Norm Maxwell and it was like, where's he gone? He was here a minute ago. So they checked the field, they checked the changing room, they checked everywhere, and there was nothing, couldn't be seen. So they obviously couldn't, um, couldn't meet with him. And I was driving home uh, to, to Sumner, 
uh, and I got halfway home and I heard this banging in my car and I was like, what the hell is that noise? And it kept going really, really loud. So I pulled the car over and I was like, what is that? Went around to the back of the car and it was coming from inside the boot. I popped the boot and Norm Maxwell was lying in my boot. And I said, what's going on, mate? What are you doing? He said, oh, those fellas back there, I didn't want to see them today. So um, yeah, I just uh, skimmed out of there. And if you can drop me off at home, that'd be good. I said, do you want to stay in the boot or? Oh no, I'll, I'll ride in the car now. Gave himself a good fellas. Yeah, he, <laughs> he probably, to be fair, he would have slept there quite happily too. I remember when he first turned up and I got him around for, for dinner. I was, um, my flatmate was a, was a guy, Dean McKinnell, you know as well. We got Norm around for dinner and we said, oh, what have you been eating? Um, you know, since you got down to Christchurch and that, what have you been doing? He said, oh, just hang out, just kind of hang out, eh? just sort of eat roast chicken at night. We're like, okay, that's, well, that's good, you know, do a few veggies and stuff. Now. No, no, just roast chicken. <laughs> Well, I'll just roast it in the pan and then eat it. So he's <laughs> in the oven, starts picking away at out of the roasting. That was his routine. He was just, he was fantastic for us. He was a good character. We were very, very lucky with all the imports that were well, so-called imports. They don't get called that now, but I mean, at the time it was imports. At the mm. time, Christchurch was still pretty white and accountant looking, you know? So Normie, the two Normies from, from Northland coming down, Mark Mayerhoffler had come down a couple of years previous with Canterbury and was just an enormous part of the team and just such a, a rock in the midfield um, for us through Canterbury and, and Crusaders. Tom by Matson, who's a Christchurch boy, obviously, but uh, brought the Fijian aspect to things. And um, we just had a, a really good group. As you say, everyone took the mickey out of one another, so everybody was equal. You, you were in trouble if you started firing up at, uh, at, at you know, getting, the, getting fun folk out of you because it was just straight away, you know, give it, can't take it. So... Yeah, the last thing you wanted to do was react adversely if you got given a new nickname by the likes of yourself, Marshy. You got given a nickname <laughs> and you fought against it, it was going to stick. Um, so, and that's just, it was just, yeah, normal, good, fun culture. And, you know, at times we were fortunate. We had some, you know, results that went our way and that always helps. But um, it was a good group. It wasn't all beer and Skittles. We had some tough times. I mentioned 99 um, we had to, when we went to South Africa, as you remember, we had to win one of those games to get into the semis and we lost down in Cape Town and it hadn't gone particularly well. Had a, a big sort of a, a, a powwow that night and it wasn't a big booze session or anything like that. We, we sat down in that um, room, I think at the Crown Plaza in Cape Town, cracked a couple of beers each, but just had, had a bit of a chat about, you know, what, what's going on and you'll probably recall better than I will the words and stuff that um, yeah. Norm Berryman used. To, to kind of inspire the team at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, like I, for all the, the, the types of characters that, you know, Maxwell was and, and, and Normie B and, and the players that you'd mentioned that came in and really enhanced our culture, uh, they are incredibly gifted players. And when they actually, because they were um, really in, integral for us uh, in terms of their sociability and their, uh, and their real um, ability to relax when they spoke it was rare whereas you know so, someone like you and I um, who, Couldn't shut who, up. Speak, who speak a lot <laughs> yeah okay well put um, when they actually said something it was rare to hear out of them and that time that Normie spoke and uh, it was basically just around you know his background where he'd come from and, and just saying you know like, we're lucky to be doing what we're doing and you know we're we shouldn't be overthinking it, you know. We've got to go out there and be ourselves and, and 
and that sort of stuff. And he was he was bang on, you know, like you can probably get a bit carried away and thinking too much about the occasion. He was kind of alluding to the, the fact that these things are very rare, what we're doing. And the minute that you take it for granted or let it slip by um, is the minute that, you know, you can't get back. So, yeah, I think that's without really... knowing it, it was quite a, quite a brilliant sort of a lesson yeah. for us all and almost behavioural science and stuff like that, even though he wouldn't put it in scientific terms. You know, the things like being able to get honest feedback to one another, you know, it doesn't all have to be about building one another up and nurturing one another. If, if things need to be said, if you need to lift your standards, then the first people who should be saying that to you are your teammates alongside you. And um, I think just the way Normie said that that night about us just being a bit more honest with what we were doing, honest with one another, honest in the way we were applying ourselves in training and, and just having a crack on the field. Um, and it, yeah, as, as you said before, it galvanised us and we went on up to Pretoria and had a win up there. Um, the funny one I like, and I, I mean, I love talking about Normie because he was such a big part of our team and we lost him about almost four years ago. In fact, it's coming up the anniversary soon. Um, and, but one of the things that I remember about Norm was when he first came into the Crusaders and um, we went over to, I think, Noosa for a pre-season training camp and the Blues were over there as well. So there was a, a bit of a quadrangular tournament. There oh, Coolum. Yeah, up Coolum, that's right. And the, I think the Waratahs and the Reds were up there as well. And we had our first pre-season hit out against the Blues that year. We'd had a bit of training up there. And, um, and the game was so low-key that it was going to be like, four quarters or, you know, or just maybe even five sections of 15 minutes, rolling subs, everything like that. And it was so loose a game. Uh, and we were still trying to get through some things, but it was still a loose game. And, and I think the Blues even turned up on bikes. They rode down to the ground at this resort on their bikes. And we had this game. So it was very, very low key. Um, and Wayne Smith said to Normie, who had just arrived, after the game, how'd you, how'd you find that, Norm? And Norm, he said, oh, yeah, I enjoyed it, Smithy, but uh, I found that the build-up was a little intense. And <laughs> Smithy said, that's probably the lowest key warm-up we're going to have all year. If you think that's intense, I don't know how you're going to handle the rest of the season. So what are we going to do around that? He said, there's got to be a solution. He said, you know what? Best to stay away from the guys in the lead-up to the game. Best to stay away from the guys who want to focus. You know, normally you're tight forwards and yourself, Marshy, as well, in terms of uh, just being physical and stuff like that. Anyone who's physical, not that Normie wasn't, but I certainly wasn't. So Smithy said, stay away from the, the guys who want to build up intensely. Go and hang out with the idiots. Go and hang out with Mertz and Con Barrel. So for the rest of his time at the Crusaders, Normie and I and, and Con Barrel would just stay away from everybody else, walk around the field before the game, you know, in the hour leading up to the game, you know, the other two blokes would be checking out the good-looking birds in the stand. That was their thing. I was probably more looking at the post, starting to visualise goal kicking, stuff like that. Um, but we'd just walk around the, walk around the ground and, and just relax and, and be idiots by ourselves. And I, I thought that was a mark of Normie, but also of Wayne Smith identifying, you know, very early on that we've got to cater to everybody's sort of individual needs in terms of their, their preparation and getting the best out of them. I had a little chuckle to myself when you mentioned Con Barrel because um, I remember, so for people out there that are unaware, uh, the, the Type 5 are notorious for being really poor roommates and incredibly bad snorers, really bad snorers. 
And Colin was easily a world champion. I think probably the only person that I've seen ever as good as uh, Colin at snoring is Tana Umanga, who didn't only didn't have his own uh, his own room because he was captain, had his own room because you just couldn't be in the same room as him. He was really the same anyway, hotel. Yeah, same hotel was a struggle. Yeah, same floor. Everyone else is on a different floor with Tana around. But um, I remember, so Colin was going through this process of trying to cure his problem. So he was one of the guys that was wearing those uh, those things that opened up your nasal passage in a game, you know, to help you breathe. And then he took that off the field and thought that that would help him with his snoring, and it didn't. Anyway, I happened to be walking down the corridor. I think we we're in Australia. It was either Australia or South Africa. doesn't matter. And it was late at night. I'd been uh, late night sort of visiting Errol Collins, uh, our masseuse, and uh, having a coffee and some chocolate with him. Uh, so everyone was pretty much tucked up in bed. Um, that uh, wasn't out uh, like like Norm Berryman doing their traditional or like Mertens and Lily getting their burger a bit later. But most other players were tucked up. Anyway, there was a door slightly ajar. So I sort of just poked my nose in there, um, thinking, oh, those guys are still awake. And I think it was Matt Sexton was on the bed by the uh, window and Con Barrel was lying on his back on his bed closest to me when I walked in. And he'd taken it to a new level. So he had the thing across his nose, but he also had a great big strip of brown tape across his mouth um, to stop him from obviously from snoring. So it was encouraging him to uh, breathe through his nose. And then, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Scott Roberts. There was two of us in the doorway. And the most brilliant thing was, we we're like, hey, Con, you all right? And he was going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like, what are you doing? Why have you got that stuff across your mouth? Mm -hmm. And we stood there for five minutes because obviously he didn't want to rip it off and then have to put it back on. So it just it's just a funny sight. Like people think, you might think, you know, that's not actually a funny story. But when you come across a guy lying in bed like that, he's only got his jocks on as well, which enhances the story on top of his bed and the, the strip of tape going across his mouth oh, just, like a Hannibal like, Lecter. it just sticks in my mind bit of a Hannibal Lecter wasn't it <laughs> oh. um, they, actually I think the referees tried to get me those those tapes as well for on the field but um, never never caught on Con I oh. like and that was one of the great indications of how the, the humour just the normal sort of humour same as any club side any under 18 side any rep side whatever school team just the the banter and the just the, the pretty simple derogatory humor that goes on. The, one of the best nicknames I've seen was Con as the Baby Eagle, wasn't he? And oh yes. Someone, why do you call him Baby Eagle? And they said, "Well, watch him run." And the next time I saw him, have to take off. He runs with his elbows there, and it looks like a <laughs> looks like a baby eagle trying to take flight. So um, always quite enjoyed that. He loved it too. Hey, uh, you mentioned uh, Pretoria earlier on. Uh, so we've we've got to so I'll, I'll give you my part rendition of the story and then please come in and and tell me about your mindset. But basically, Pretoria, very important game, a must win for us. And we'd it'd been an absolute struggle all day. We'd been scrapping our way through on leftovers, uh, and it's never an easy place to play and win anyway. But we desperately needed to win. The game we were we we're behind, and the game is. is getting beyond us. Uh, I think we were two behind at the time, possibly. Um, anyway, uh, time's ticking away. There's a couple of minutes left and we've got the ball and then we, I think we've got it around the sort of 22 area. 
and uh, one of the lads takes the ball into contact and they're over the ball. And this is when breakdowns are more of a mess than, than ever. Uh, and they've got their hands all over and it looks like we're going to turn it over. Uh, and if we turn it over, they'll get the scrum and kick it out and probably win the game. And just before the referee's about to blow his whistle, I feel this like big whoosh of momentum come straight past me. Obviously, I wasn't interested in cleaning the rack and securing the ball, just watching what was going on. And this bullet absolutely smashes into the into the ruck and the ball uh, pops sort of, sort of free on our side and there's groans and grunts and blood and people's hair are all over the place. It's an absolute mess. And the referee blows his whistle and goes, advantage to the Crusaders. So we win the ruck after looking like we're going to use it, uh, lose it. That missile was Todd Blackadder. So he went smashing in there, into the ruck, made, did all the damage, and I uh, managed to secure us one more opportunity when it looked when hope looked lost. So you know, captain, inspiration. Probably so you can, in, did he? Did yeah, he act yeah. with a big bucket? That's his yes. most effective way of cleaning out. Put that in the way. He would bump three or four people out of there. So the next thing, um, obviously, we've got this one last opportunity to try and win the match. And you come sauntering up next to me, uh, and we're sort of thinking about scrum move, what we're going to do, options. Uh, you know, what do we do now? Looking for some inspiration out of our captain. Toddy's sort of scraping himself up off the bottom of this ruck. You and I are standing there like two kids on Christmas Day, you know, wanting to get the info from our inspirational leader, what we should do, what we should do. We look at him and he dusts himself off and stares at the two of us. And he, he looks and, he, and the words of inspiration come out of his mouth and he, he, he says, just do something. There's one other that was there, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a there was a yeah, there was a word that can't go on TV that was in the middle of that. But so, like, I was just like, "What?" Um, so we sort of had this idea that we would uh, phase a couple of times, and then um, there's possibility that you might uh, sneak back into the pocket. Yeah, um, well, that was as you say, '99, and we needed this win to get into the the semis and. You know, I don't want it all to be about me because we, we all had a very, very tough game through that. And ultimately, I get a chance to do an action at the end of the game. And for once, that actually worked out. But um, I'd really had an annoying game. Why? See, this is why I don't go into a gym. In Cape Town, I'd been at a gym for a team training session. I'd been yapping away to someone as I pulled a weight off a, off a squat rack. But the, the 20 kg weight had a little 5 kg or something in front of it. <laughs> And it landed on your toe. And yapping away, it's just dropped off and dropped straight on my toe. <laughs> That's right. Right on my toe, on the end of my toe. So it didn't break it or whatever, but it has absolutely killed me. And I've hobbled down and I've gone and had to get the, all the blood released out of my toenail and all that sort of stuff. And I was, for the rest of the week, leading up to that Pretoria game, I was at trainings. I was even getting these nasty little needles into mm -hmm. my toe just to give me some... Um, you know, some, um, what's it called? Pain relief. And inevitably those pain relievers would work off, so the anesthetic would work off in the game with about 15, 20 minutes to go. So I'd eventually be hovering around. I'm no good with pain anyway. I've got a very, very low threshold of pain. So it'd have been a really, really tough tour. We'd had the loss in Cape Town. We had pressure on. We were current champions after 98. So we had this game in Pretoria, and you know what Pretoria is like, Marshy. It's fantastic if you're a home player. If you're a visiting player, it's really hostile. And, and I mean that with a lot of respect. You don't just walk, uh, get the bus in and go straight under the stand like you do in most other stadiums. The bus 
stadiums, stadia, the bus parks on the outside and you walk in at the end of the field and you walk around the field right in front of all these big corporate boxes, all of whom had South Africans, big, big Dutchmen in there eating steak since six o'clock in the morning and uh, all just hurling abuse at you. And, uh, you know, we're going to smash you. We want to scrum you. And I'm shouting out, what does scrum mean? And uh, just into you the whole time. The, the flip side is, of course, if you do win in Pretoria, they stick around afterwards. They're all having beers. And as you walk back out, they're incredibly complimentary. They just love a good contest. They love the rugby. So they're calling out well played and all that sort of stuff. But at the start of the game, it's very, very hostile. And we've been in this hostile environment the whole way through the game, under pressure. Todd Blackadder has had his Martin Luther King moment. Actually, just before then, I've had a penalty. We're two points down, as you say. I've taken a shot at goal. It was one of the best kicks I've ever made in my life. Just struck it absolutely beautifully. It's flying right down the middle from the sideline, and it just get, gets pushed away. There's a tiny gap in the stadium where a draft comes through, and it blew the ball the wrong way. It's missed. And the whole crowd's going off, and they're treating it like they've put me off, that, you know, that, that, that they're responsible for me missing the kick. And I'm kind of like, well, that's unfair because I can miss a kick with nobody watching. You know, I can miss a kick really, really easily. Why should you be taking credit? So I was getting more and more annoyed. I've got a sore toe. We're standing there having our council meeting among the backs, much like they do at the end of trainings, you know, forwards do the scrum practice and the backs stand around giggling and playing knuckle bones and stuff like that. And so on the field, we're having this discussion and I'm intent on not taking a drop goal. Firstly, because I thought the entire Bulls team is going to try and charge down the drop goal. Secondly, I'm like, did you not see me four years ago in 95 at the World Cup final? I wasn't good at drop goals. And because of that, we lost a World Cup final. I'm not really sure I want to be the guy to fail on this either. Let's run the ball because they're all going to run at me for the drop goal. I can pass it to someone else. Then that someone else can either score or give it to someone else to score or if we don't it's their bloody fault it's not mine so we're having this blackadder has his martin luther king john f kennedy kind of inspirational speech history moment with the big f word right in the middle there and then stuck his head back in the scrum we've gone oh what do we do the, the ball's got to go in you've gone and put it in immaculately under the lock's feet as you do and every halfback mate I'm, there's not i'm not having a go at you but um, the ball's come out, Ron Cribbs zipped off to the blind side. I'm thinking, I'm trying to run. I want to run the ball. Throw me the ball. I want to pass to these other guys. You've passed the ball to where I should have been for a drop goal. Had to get back a little bit and get it. At that stage, had no time to do anything. Just kicked it as hard as I could. Closed my eyes. There was a little bit of contact coming up, so I certainly closed my eyes and got out of the way, but I've kicked it as hard as I could. And then I thought, I think that's going through. And I've run back, and in a, just a moment of child, childish boyhood enthusiasm. I was only 28 at the time. I've pulled the double bird at the crowd. And it was really just a celebration. It was an exuberance. It wasn't meant to be that nasty. Norm Berryman was the first guy who got to me. And the smile on his face made me think, I wasn't sure whether he'd actually seen the drop kick go over and know we'd won or whether he'd just seen the fingers. So <laughs> I pulled that. We've managed to sneak through. We've got the win. I went into the change room afterwards and I said to Wayne Smith, I think I'm going to have to come to the press conference with you and, and make an apology. He said, oh, what for? You know, Mahoney's like, what, 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 what's the matter? I said, I'll oh, go and have a look at the footage. He's gone and looked at the, we had a computer in the corner of the change room. He's looked at the end. He said, yeah, you better come along. So went along to the press conference. Uh, I was sitting alongside Ruben Kerr, 
who uh, was, a, was a fantastic competitor, an awesome player, uh, flanker from, from South Africa for the Bulls. He was the captain. He was there. And they asked him at one point, I'd already always got on well with him, mainly because, you know, I didn't probably threaten him, <laughs> either running with the ball or trying to tackle him. But he got asked, oh, what did you think of Merton's rude gesture at the end? And he had one of those little moments where he could have gone for me or against me. And he, he just turned around and said, I probably would have done the same thing. So <laughs> that, that kind of saved me. And then I think the rest of South Africa knew that uh, what it was like to play in Pretoria. And I think South Africans actually, I think they, they kind of took some pride in me doing that because I think it was the first time they'd seen any kind of aggression from me on a field. So I think they were proud of me. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you're being very humble and very kind, but um, you know there was there were extend, extending uh, extenuating circumstances in that which were you know they you know you're putting it mildly when you say that they got into you a little bit after you missed that penalty kick. Like there was a fair amount of abuse coming your way and and quite a few fingers being given at you as well for missing the kick. So yeah, I was probably yeah, down a thousand to two. <laughs> it's a natural reaction that you know you you you, you have the last laugh and uh, you're only mildly sort of doing a replica of what was always already being done to you though because the things are yelling out so it was a great moment though and, and obviously you know we went through in 99 to, to spoil uh, TV's um, party down in Dunedin which was uh, which was a bit of a shame for the Highlanders because they'd had such a successful year and again we probably went into that game with the, on the back of travel um, as underdogs because uh, we had to go to Brisbane was it for the yeah, it was quite an unusual year in that the, the, the teams who finished third and fourth beat the top two place teams in the semis away. Yeah. So I think we may have, may have played our last game against the Waratahs in Sydney, perhaps, and stayed in, in, in Australia for the week. Went up to Brisbane. Queensland had finished top, had an amazing team, still had Tim Horan there. And uh, I'm not sure if Jason Little was still there, but um, I know he might have been Waratahs by that stage, but they, they had an amazing team. Eels was still playing. Uh, David Wilson and Herbert. They were top dogs. Dan Herbert, uh, Paddy Howard, and I oh, know Pat was down at Rummy, sorry, but um, they, they were the top team. And we went up there and, and had a win. At the same time, Highlanders went across and beat the Stormers in Cape Town or Western Province, whatever it was called there. So, and they, so they, was, they were two incredible wins. And for us, that was another kind of pinch yourself moment just to, to mm. win in Brisbane like that. And then you know, we came back from Brisbane and, and the Highlanders had to traipse all the way back from Cape Town to their own home ground and, and have that final. And, you know, it was a pretty, pretty tense final. It was, a, it was really exciting, wasn't it, to be in a, particularly probably for you, born and growing up in Southland, that um, it was a, a South Island derby. I remember it being really exciting as a South Island derby. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty cool time. Hey, do you remember, um, because one of the, my sort of, thoughts again that sort of popped into my mind when you mentioned being in Dunedin um remember around that time that we uh introduced the they introduced the breathalyzer <laughs> so so for people out there what they did was they introduced the uh breathalyzer device that you um you know you have for for what the police have for drink driving but they introduced it into the crusaders set up as a educational uh instrument so what we would do was, you know, the next morning, if you've had a few beers after a win and when you get to the recovery session, you'd do the breath breathalyzer and they would record what your reading are, is and make sure that you've not, not overdone it the night, the night before. And 
that sort of care. And I, I can't remember whether it was after the I think it was after the final. It possibly was when Greg Somerville basically blew the machine apart. And usually when someone actually blew it too high and obviously it had a big night and been caught out by management, there was that old, the old heads down, mm, mm, that's not good. But I remember when Yoda blew like about 1,200 or something on this machine, everyone was like clapping, clapping in the bus. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, in the context of the team, absolutely, you know, let your hair down a little bit. You need to let off some steam and whatnot, provided you keep a lid on it. Um, at the same time, you've got to be careful, kind of, don't we glorifying, um, I guess, the, the drinking culture. Um, but it was certainly brought in as a, as a way to give guys an idea of what they needed to do to recover well. Some mm. people can go to two or three in the morning having you know, a few drinks and it won't affect them. Other people need to be in bed by 10, 11 o'clock or whatever and maybe can, can, can have one because ultimately you want to get into that recovery phase right from then and, and the next day, you know. So as you say, they, they brought this in more to give people an idea of how efficient their body was at processing alcohol and, and how much they need to stop at so it's, it's not, you know, impinging their ability to recover the next day. And I did put my hand up the time in that meeting when they announced it and say, do you, do you reckon there's a chance or a risk that this might turn into some sort of a competition? Um, <laughs> and it, uh, I, I got ignored, which is probably fair enough. But um, yeah, without throwing Greg Somerville under a bus, <laughs> I think he's still probably the record holder. Um, I'd say. Got out there to say and tried to play touch rugby the, the next day. Mm. Wouldn't say he was effective. There were, there were quite a few mispasses that got called when it when it sort of got towards. He wasn't the only one, by the way. It's, uh, it's certainly not him. But no, we were. I think we were a pretty good team at managing that whole that whole thing because you know you do want to get together as a group when you've been working hard. I know this will sound like an absolute excuse, but you know. If, if, one of the ways to do that and socialising in that environment is to sit down and have a, um, a couple of beers. So, you know, you just do have to, uh, have to be mindful of, of what your recovery is about. I was um, interested a couple of years back to go into the, the Crusaders um, hotel or their, their, their conference room at the hotel in Sydney when they played. was very lucky to be invited in there just to have a look and, and was amazed that they had a beer there, but it wasn't, they certainly weren't going to have more than one or two. Um, their enjoyment was really around. I mean, it was almost symbolic having a, a, a bottle of beer there or whatever. Their, um, their culture was around about just enjoyment of one another. And um, a huge part of that was Jordan Telfour, which um, struck me at the time as being quite, um, quite interesting in the context of what Christchurch is seen as, as, a, as kind of a demographic uh, and how far we've, we've moved on in, in 20 years. And he was fantastic, you know, directing the team on their kind of their, their team song and stuff like that. And um, everybody was, was in it together. And uh, like I say, it was, you know, different from the old days of court sessions, but it had a similar, very similar feel. Um, so yeah, that, I'm glad of the era we played in. Um, we, we, we were pretty good with the Crusaders. I don't think we had much in the way of incidents or things we needed to worry about. We, we tended to keep things um, to ourselves and, and close in and, and quite controlled. So. Uh, to the point where one of my greatest memories with the Crusaders is when we won the following year in 2000 in Canberra. Um, it was obviously a hard place for Cantad, for people of Christchurch to get to, to support. But we had a really strong throng of 
supporters. And again, it was a game that we shouldn't have won. We had 30% possession against the best attacking team in probably in Super Rugby history. Um, we managed to, to hold out and win that. Back at the hotel, a handful of or the, the supporters, the hardy supporters that had managed to get over there from Christchurch. And we just thought, let's get them all into our court session, into our team room. So they all came in. And among that number was my father who'd come across, which was just awesome for, for me to be, be there in, in that environment, having a beer with Terry. Both was, getting yeah. old... Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. And, and I think, um, you know, that ability to, for the Crusaders to sort of open up uh, to, to everybody, uh, not only just family, but for supporters that had made the effort. And you know, 2000 again was, uh, we were pretty much uh, underdogs and hiding to nothing to win that match and somehow managed to find a way to win it with 30, 28% possession, something like that. Bit of magic from Ron Cribb. Uh, some pretty immaculate goal kicking from yours truly and, and some courageous defence won us a game against the odds, really. Yeah, the two, the two aspects to that game, I remember, I mean, obviously as a goal kicker, I'm going to remember kicks. I remember three things, actually. One of them was just, I mean, obviously I wasn't the strong link on defence, so I had to inevitably rely on the strength of the line and try and do as best I could within that. But I just remember at one point looking at Mark Hammett and thinking of the effort he was putting in from going from scrum to cleaning out in rucks to running over the other side of the field to clean out again. Then he's got the responsibility of throwing into the line out. But seeing him, the energy he had late in the game to get back in position, to get back onside, get back into that defensive line and then come up again and make another hit. I was just standing behind him, obviously. <laughs> just... <laughs> Being like that, that, the guys were unbelievable. The effort they put on that defensive effort that night. Um, so that was my probably my abiding memory. The other one was having a crack at Sterling Mortlock. Unfortunately, I and I get on very very well with Sterling. I see him over here in Sydney a lot. Um, but you know, you you go for every little thing you can get. And that night he wasn't kicking very confidently. I think he might have missed five shots or something like that. And Having been on that side myself, I've been on you know on occasions where I've had a zero percent strike rate or whatever it was, and, and copped a bit of flack. So I just remember feeling bad actually afterwards about times where Sterling had stood up, set the ball up, ready for a, a kick, and I'm standing there ten meters back, or probably nine meters back, just saying, "Mate, you've got no idea where this is going, have you? You absolutely no idea." <laughs> and unfortunately, he'd take a step past the ball in front of the ball to to scrape a line in the in the grass with his boot to give himself a target so he'd come even closer again and so i'm standing there going what are you doing that is not going to help nothing's going to help you basically <laughs> so anyway so i'm glad that uh, i'm glad that i managed to kick the last penalty otherwise the laugh would have been on me obviously so i managed to kick that last penalty with the penalty at the end all i was worried about really was cramp i was only about 42 or 43 meters out but that night in Canberra had been snowing. There were flakes of snow coming on the field. Uh, it was so cold that John Howard, the Prime Minister afterwards, only took his gloves off to shake one team's hand, and that was the Brumbies. So he kept his gloves on to shake our hands, possibly worried that we might have nicked his watch as well at the time. But um, <laughs> it was so cold, and I was starting to cramp at the end of the game. And when I cramp, when I kick goal kick at the end of my follow-through, the cramp really grabs into my calf. And it's and like I said, I've got a low pain threshold. So with that kick, all I was worried about is 
I knew I was a wuss and I knew that my likelihood would be to pull up and not follow through properly because I knew I was going to be in some pain. So my whole focus in that kick was make sure you just deal with the pain afterwards, just try and kick. And um, in the end, I'm not sure if I even got cramped, but that was, that was all I was worried about with that kick was, was the cramp. Um, you the mentioned... Was amazing. I remember, you know, having been luckily through two winning Crusaders teams, that third one was just, I mean, because it was so cold, because it was so intense, the game, I was just absolutely knackered at the end and just went and sat in the, the cubicle in the change room and just took a real lot of pleasure in looking at the some of the new guys who hadn't been there in the previous two years and it was their first title and just seeing the enjoyment on their face was, uh, was a big moment. You mentioned the changing room. Uh, you also mentioned earlier about uh, preparation and um, Wayne Smith told you to gravitate to oh, well, Norm Berryman to gravitate towards you uh, rather than me. Uh, you might, I guess you were probably at the other extreme to what I was in terms of preparing for a game, um, particularly on game day. I wonder if you remember uh, how, yeah, I'm quite, I got quite intense. So, and you're the complete opposite. So for people out there, like you've, you've basically got chalk and cheese here. So, you know, like I'm, I'm getting very wound up, you know, particularly sort of 20 minutes before kickoff, uh, probably best to stay away from me because I'm building myself up to, uh, I guess, uh, a massive amount of momentum to go out there and get stuck in, whereas Mertz, you'd be lucky to find them um, in the first instance, and you're probably likely to be tampering with someone's bag or doing something like that to keep yourself occupied. But this particular occasion, we're about to go first out onto... Lancaster Park, the old Lancaster Parks, so was Jade Stadium, um, and it transformed to, and the, it was a semi-final. Was that a semi? Yeah, semi-final. Was I the last game around Robin? Anyway, a big game, and I'd worked myself up into this feverish mode, ready to burst out there. And the last thing you do before you go out is um, everybody throws their jerseys on, gets in a big team huddle, arms around the captain and a few key players, will say some inspirational stuff and then boom the knock on the door comes from the manager out the door down the tunnel burst out onto the field to play and I'm getting I always get uh, got changed beside Mertz so nine and ten are together anyway this particular time um, you know it's a big game and I'm wound up and I throw my jersey on we get together do the big huddle knock on the door out the tunnel walking down the tunnel getting just to that entrance way and about to burst out there and there's a bloody, you grab me by the back of the, back of the jersey and I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And pull me back and it's, uh, oh mate, thought I should just let you know you've got my jersey on. <laughs> so in my feverish, uh, you know, I grabbed the wrong jersey off the hook and I put the number 10 jersey on. You kind of alluded to me that at the time you, you said uh, probably best I wear that jersey. I'm probably a little bit more capable of playing this number than what you are, even though you've wanted to play there before. And I was like, Mertz, you're telling me now? You've made, I've, put, I've had this jersey on now for nearly five minutes, but it was your relaxed nature that you're thinking, how long can I let this gag go before I'm actually finally going to let him know he's got the wrong jersey on? Yeah, I probably should have been a bit more considerate than that and, and told you a bit earlier. I was actually pretty happy to wear the number nine jersey, although I, I think, to be fair, it would have been more accurate if I'd said you're more capable of wearing this nine jersey than I am because the occasions when I went into play at nine were not fun. There is a lot of running. There is a lot of chasing around. There's a lot of bending over and having to grab this ball and getting your fingers kicked. Luckily, you've got the, the stronger, more robust fingers than I do. 
Um, but that is not a fun role. And I had to play that role quite a bit in 98, actually, when you'd been actually peeled out of there. Mm. Um, I think Elton Moncrief came down as well. So we had Aaron Flynn, who was a, a fantastic Canterbury halfback of long standing. We also had Elton Moncrief came down from Wellington and Elsie would inevitably get yellow carded. He was one of the most feisty blokes on a field ever. And you obviously know from having played against him too. Um, you're not, never one to back down from that either. But inevitably, I'd have to go into halfback for, for 10 minutes at least once in any game that Elton Moncrief was playing. Sometimes twice. Like, <laughs> it's, it's not a fun role. But yeah, in hindsight, I probably should have... Um, I was, I, I was curious to know how it would look if I did start playing at halfback, and particularly if the commentators would know. Now, being on the other side of the fence now, we certainly wouldn't condone that sort of tomfoolery because it just ruins our professionalism or hinders our professionalism. But, um, yeah, I, look, I always like to have fun, but I think the more I went through it, the more I realised, look, you've got to really keep isolated from guys. You know, you might want to relax and, and joke around a bit, but but everyone's different and uh, don't hinder theirs. But um, in preparation, gee, I was worried where you were going with that in terms of talking about match preparation because <laughs> there have been a couple of spurious stories, you know, doing the rounds over the last few years. And I think it came from me sort of hamming something up on stage with Will Carling one time. So I won't go into specifics, but what I did like about my preparation was I managed to convince Wayne Smith. Now, I've actually been, it's actually been corroborated a little bit lately, one of the NRL kickers over here has said his kicking is much better when he plays golf during the week because it's all about rhythm and, you know, striking a static object and stuff like that. It takes me back to those early years with Wayne Smith where I managed to convince him. And I think I like to say genuinely and sincerely, I convinced Smitty that the more golf I played during the week, the better I kicked just because of the, you know, the, the nature of it. It's very, very similar. And so he'd be going around in the changing room or in the hotel on the day of the game saying to guys, okay, you're feeling marshy, you know, have you, you know, done your stuff, done your prep during the week, have you, you focused, blah, blah, blah. Say this to all these guys. And then he'd get to me and he'd be like, Mertz, did you play enough golf this week? How'd that go? And so everyone's going, oh, all right, this guy, has he got Wayne Smith around his finger or what? No, it was <laughs> genuinely about that. So that was, that was my preparation. And, you know, Norm Berryman was another big part of that. Time you must have almost needed to... Um... You almost needed to play halfback for me when I sent myself off. Uh, you, you alluded to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was a genuine... It, was, it wouldn't be the first time you've seen me throw my toys and I threw my toys in with the All Blacks as well. I remember when Hardy pulled me off the field before half-time down, down at Carisbrook because he thought yeah. I was injured. And even as much as I told the, uh, the physio at the time that I was just having a bit of a bad patch, I'm not injured. Um, he ripped me off the field, I think, after 30 something minutes, and I stormed off and swore at him right in front of the TV cameras and off yeah. into the changing room. And then, uh, obviously, this uh, incident with Andre Watson and, uh, <laughs> and, and at, uh, again, Jade Stadium, where, like, to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, my version of the story was, was just an absolutely abysmal decision from Andre, which threw me over the edge. You know, you know, sometimes when somebody just cracks, and like for me, <laughs> the fact that he had blown the whistle when we were still moving forward and that, and I just thought, you know what? And I swore at him, and you cannot swear at referees. So I swore at him because I was so disgusted with his decision. Not out loud. And I thought, I'm not going to get away with that. He's going to card me, so I'll save you the trouble of reaching into your pocket, mate. I'm out of here. 
He went for his pocket too. He went for the gun. Yeah. Don Wayne. Mm. Um, he went for that because I, I loved it. Like without blowing up, blowing smoke up yeah. I the, the competitive nature of it, that was you. Um everybody talks about how Zinzan Brook was really competitive with everything he did, whether it was drinking a Coke through to, you know, rolling a bloody coin towards a wall, whatever. But I thought you were probably the most competitive and as a compliment, the most competitive bloke I ever played with and knew. Um, and that extended to just how, how you operate. It's why you push yourself so well at training. It's why you were the, one of those guys when we were talking before about who could, you know, go fairly late at night and still wake up in the morning and push themselves through stuff. That's you. Um, but that was just a part of that. And, and Andre, too, is, I mean, it's brilliant when you look back at it, how you diffuse that, because Andre was going for his pocket, without a doubt. There's no other reason. It's not, you know, he's not an Aussie cricketer. He doesn't have, you know. I, I tell you, I watched, paper in there. we've been showing the archive games over here um, on, on Sky Sport, which throughout the lockdown period were amazing. It was good to look back on a few of those games and, uh, there was a game that you were involved with. We were playing at, again, Jade Stadium, and he made a decision, and you were at the breakdown, and you thought about going into the breakdown. You actually halfway went into it, and he blew his whistle, and again, controversially, because I reckon one of the opposition players, might be New South Wales, came in with their hand and, and pulled the ball back, and you basically looked at him and went like that, which it was like that's a weird decision, and you went to take your mouth guard out, and he penalised you. You didn't actually even say anything. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, I cracked up. I rewound it, rewound it, watched it again. You actually, the look you gave him, and you'd already obviously reacted, and you might have murmured something before it. And he looked at, and you were you were getting the mouth guard out to really give him the Merton's verbal. And he was like, I know what's coming here. I'm going to penalise him before he gets a chance to speak. I was like, you can't do that. He's not seen anything. I was past the point of no return going for the mouth guard. <laughs> yeah. Came we knew we were going like that. It, it, we knew that that was going to be a decent verbal assault. Well, assistance. Or education. Assistance, yeah. I only took the, the mouth guard came out for goal kicks and for um, helping refs. I didn't even take it out for, for calling moves. But uh, yeah, I, was, I was about to give them the benefit of all my knowledge. And I mean, you know, sometimes the thing is with refs, they've got a, a million things to look at. And, you know, at nine and 10, you're obviously assessing every single breakdown because it's your job to know how quickly the ball's coming out and how well it's going to come out, you know? So every breakdown you're assessing what should be going on, when the ball should be coming out, because you're, you're, you're basically judging your run, your timing, the move potentially off all of that. So, you know, you're looking at that 160 times a game and throughout trainings during the week. So I thought we knew the, the ruck area pretty well. So anyway, I always got on very, very well with Andre and, and still will if, if, if we catch up, have a beer. I see some of the refs I run into, uh, like, like Gus Erickson, um, Wayne Erickson over here in, in Sydney. I see him at a few few rugby lunches and things like that. Always get on and have a, have a good beer. They never, never really kind of acknowledge the help I used to give them, but I did try. I tried my best. Um, you uh, mentioned that you felt that I was quite competitive. Uh, I would counter that you're equally as competitive and, and not just on the rugby field, which was incre incredibly um, motivating for you to be competitive and you wanted to win and, and you did, you were a winner, but also whether it was playing cards 
or computer games or anything like that, you had this real passion to win, you know, and and that's great because that's what makes you what, what makes you who you are. But you know, like you weren't adverse to throwing the odd uh, toys out of the cot every now and then when things didn't go your way. I remember that time at uh, the at uh, the Cotswold when we game day, yeah, game day. We were doing the little drill uh, just as backs, you know, forwards away doing all their complicated stuff, and we were playing a passing game. And for whatever reason, you weren't ready, and the ball hit you in the chest. And uh, but you know you weren't ready. It has been a funny start to 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 the game, but um, it was like, oh, Mertz, you're out. What? You're out, Mertz. Oh, I wasn't ready. I didn't know we'd started. No, no, Mertz, you're out. I can't be out when we hadn't started. That's not fair. It's not right. You can't. You are, mate. You picked up the ball and booted it, and it went. And mate, you struck it well. To be fair. Because from the from the middle of the Cotswold Hotel, you booted it, went over the top of the hotel roof, across the, um, the yep, yeah, right across the motorway uh, road and into the hotel on the other side of the of the road, and then just sort of gave that one off to your room. And <laughs> we were all standing there going, "Well, I guess that's game over." That's that's kind. I don't think I gave it that one and walked off. I think there were a couple of names got called and <laughs> yeah. I stopped it. It's like when you see those cartoons where someone turns and walks off angrily and you see the little smoke coming off the head. Brilliant. Uh, look, I think it wasn't quite so much. I don't think, I don't know if it was the, that exact situation in terms of uh, not ready, because that sounds a bit like an excuse. There was certainly an argument as to whether someone had balked or someone had clapped and stuff like that. Um, I was, yeah, I've always been hot on not cheating. And... Um, then what incensed me even further was the thought that a vote of two or three people makes oh. something right or wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's just um, basically ganging up. Yeah. Someone Matson, I think, was there as well. Yeah, yeah. No, look, like I said, you know, I just whenever we did anything, you know, whether it's golf or anything like a, a competitive game or cards computer games back in the day, you know, you were very much wanting to win in a good way, you know, that's just your yeah. competitive streak. Is... What I really enjoyed in South Africa was when we when we were there with the All Blacks and we'd go and golf, uh, I think it was Tane Randall came up with it because you never took your golf clubs across. It was a pretty bad look if you were going to put your golf clubs on the um, on the plane when you leave New Zealand with the All Blacks. But um, we would go obviously and hire golf clubs and then nobody would think to bring golf gloves across. So you'd always buy a golf glove on the first game that you play in South Africa. And it was Tane Randall had that bright idea of what are we going to play for? He said, let's play for the golf gloves. So whoever won that game, just, you know, everybody else handed their golf gloves in, which was annoying because you'd have to go and buy another, you know, bugger around in the, in the pro shop the next time and go and buy an extra glove as well or whatever. So, there was always ways to, to do little things like that. It was never, you know, thousands or millions or whatever. It was just competition. Funnily enough, actually, one of the other characters we, we played with, with Hofty, uh, just refused to play for any money, Carl Hoft, whatsoever. Oh, yeah. To the point where we were trying to play cards on a bus trip between London and Paris, three hours, and we said, oh, let's play some cards. Mark Hammond, I think, was involved in there as well, maybe you, but we, we just said, oh, let's put a you know, few dollars on every hand. And Hofty says, no, I can't do it, can't. It's against my principles. We say, well, what if we just play for three hours and the best team is just for $1? Let's play for something. No, can't do it. Away we went. 
Um, when you think through that uh, amazing ride, like I said, we started off as cowboys, really. Uh, 95 um, was the end of amateur rugby, as we know it. 96, that first year of professionalism, where we were all at work trying to find a pathway forward. Never knew where the game was going to end up. Bit of adversity with the Crusaders in the first couple of years and then success and right through um, to when sort of the both of us finished um, around a similar time. Um, what really sticks out for you, I guess for me, probably just quickly, briefly first, would I reckon 99, because I missed 98, um, three quarters of the way through the, this, I think I might even been halfway through doing my Achilles, even though I was there in 98 and you're considered to be part of the team, it's just not the same as being on the field. So when we managed to replicate getting to a final in 99, winning there, it was my first. So that always sticks very vividly in my mind. And then probably the last one in 2005 for me where last year, um, you know, as a crusader and, and managed to win that title. Um, plenty of good memories and good fun in between all of that. And then again, lots of success and the odd disappointment. But, you know, for you, what really sort of sticks out is, as you, you mentioned 2000, is that probably your favourite? It's, yeah, it, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, 98 was such a surprise just out of nowhere. And it's it's the first time the team the team won the title. Um, it is a tough feeling, you know, because you did do so much through the the year and then not to be right there at the finish. It's, it's, it's a hard one. But, I mean, nobody in the team considered that anyone had less of a, an impact and a contribution just from not being there. But I know what you're saying. It's... Um, I don't know, I think, because I, I look back on that period and I, I kind of look back at the characters and the people. Um, the results are one thing, and they were awesome. And I mean, you know, obviously for you, 99, first final year playing, but then also when it was a South Island derby, or derby. Uh, goodness knows how many requests for tickets you got in the, in the week leading up to it from all the, all the sweet eaters coming north and <laughs> Tiranas and Kingswoods and... They would have been hitting you up all week, I'm sure. I don't know if you would have got a moment's peace. But um, 2001 was really, really satisfying in that, you know, we, we were up against the best attacking team. And Crusaders, in, in those sort of formative years, do you remember we when we'd be on defence so much down at Lancaster Park, right down our own line? And this is ironic coming from me, really, talking about defence. But we had such a strong defensive line. We had such pride in our defensive system and the work rate. That, that entailed that we'd spend, you know, 10 or 15 min minutes right on our own goal line before finally causing a mistake, making a turnover. We'd thump the ball. That was the only time I got involved, actually, come in and try and thump the ball as far as I could up the field. And the crowd would go absolutely nuts at that. So the defence, that coming into that 2000 final in Canberra, over in Canberra, foreign prime minister doesn't even want to take off his bloody gloves to shake our hands, um, snowing, greatest attacking team in Super Rugby, had 70% of the ball, and we still managed to come through that. That was just a hell of an achievement. And then you look at 2002, which was a, an unbeaten season. But across all of that, I just look back on the, the the guys we played with. You know, it wasn't all beer and skittles. We look back on a fantastic era, but there were hard times. There were losses like every team has. And we, the, our strength of culture got us through the tough, the tough times rather than letting them continue. And, just everything, everyone who contributed. Norm, we'll talk about the Maxwells and uh, the Norms and um, Con Barrel from up in Northland. I mean, that's been perpetuated now with Jack Goodhue, of course. Um, you look at um, 
what was I thinking of before? God, it's just gone out of my head. Damn it. Everyone who came down um, and who brought a little bit of something, you know, from the early days with Mark Mayer-Hopler, who was a North Harbour guy, um, uh, just the, the, the people we were with, Afatul Soawo, who scored that crucial try around Brian Lima, chipped and chased over Jeff Wilson. No mean feat, either of those things, for that final in Dunedin. And he was, you know, a great character within the team. Inevitably, the Polynesian boys who came in as winger, you know, the, the, the Islanders, Marika Vunibaka, and that, they'd be as quiet as a mouse, wouldn't they? And then yeah. you'd see them in the corner and jokes flying around in English everywhere and they're grinning away and you go, you're understanding everything, you little bugger, aren't you? So all turned into one of the cheekiest buggers in the team, including when he had to wear the Crusader for a day. We had this thing, as you remember, where you'd done something stupid during the previous week, you got awarded the Crusader of the day and you had to wear this Crusader kind of um, tunic with a big red cross on it and you'd have to walk around and admit that you'd done something idiotic. And he was wearing it when we went to a winery in Stellenbosch where they had a cheetah. And the yep. cheetah suddenly took a liking to this bright red cross on a white background and decided to make a few steps towards a fatal. And despite the fact that I said that the cheetah's fine and he's on a on a leash um, and don't make any sudden movements, a fatal soil or tried to sprint away. And within a second, he was quick, but within a second he had this cheetah on his back. Yeah. And, uh, and was squealing a little bit and nothing happened of it, but moments like that and the personalities like that are probably what I look back on the most, Marshy. Well, mate, thank you so much for chatting uh, to us. Um, obviously, these are difficult times at the moment. Um, you're, you're based in Sydney now. Uh, we're not sure when we're going to be able to catch up again. Hopefully it's sooner rather than later. It's been too long already between drinks, but great to have your insight and uh, stories into what was a really cool time with the Crusaders. So stay safe, buddy, and um, hopefully we'll catch up sooner rather than later, as I said. Cheers, mate. I've enjoyed it. It's been a very quick five minutes, hasn't it? So uh, we're going slightly <laughs> over time, but mate, I've enjoyed it. I love Super Rugby Aotearoa starting up again. Enjoyed hearing your commentary again last weekend. Cracking games, two more coming up, you know, every weekend. It's just fantastic. Even from over here, I'm thankful that Fox is carrying it. So it's, uh, it's awesome to see you back out there and be good to have a beer when we can soon. Cheers, mate.